reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Welcome back to Thread. We're in episode seven, and we are still camping out in Genesis and exploring the creation account within this sub-series, God's World Created, which Dave introduced last or two episodes ago, I think, with a beautiful diagram. So please go back and look at that if you want a big picture of where we're at. And we've discussed creation and beauty so far in episode five and seasons and rhythms in episode six. And today's topic is light and darkness. And I feel like we need uh, some spooky music in the background of this. So whoever's editing should put that in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but that's, it's something all Christians are particularly familiar with, I feel like, uh, maybe even triggered by that phrase, light and darkness. And we're going to talk about in this episode how many people only really know maybe half of the story. And our hope is to expand our understanding of light and darkness to a more holistic view of um, a topic and concepts that are actually very important and foundational in Christianity. And there are several important verses that lay the groundwork for this conversation. And we're going to begin here in Genesis 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Yeah, as a reminder, I know we've talked about this in multiple episodes, but before creation, before God creates, we see a lack of structure and we see emptiness. God's creative work brings form and meaning into the world. So in this passage, he calls forth light and separates it from darkness. Light has historically been tied to the presence or activity of God, and that's a really important way that we think about it. So today's conversation is a good place to introduce the role of metaphor. So when we're talking about light and darkness, of course, in creation account, we're specifically talking about literal light and literal darkness. But for most people who've been around Christianity, they know that light and darkness have come to take on other meaning, a metaphoric meaning. So, Hannah, maybe you could give some definition to the idea of metaphor. What is metaphor? Hmm. Yeah, so metaphor is a way of describing something by referring to something else. And it's different to a simile. And this is taking me back. I used to tutor students in English. But a simile is where you say something is like something, like my love is like a red, red rose. Like there's a clear comparison there, but it's not is. Whereas metaphor, you're saying something is something else, which I think if you're not a native English speaker as well, that's quite a kind of a strange concept. But an example from everyday life might be Dave is an early bird or Dave is a night owl. Obviously not literally early bird or a night owl. You are an early bird, aren't you, Dave? <laughs> I'm an early bird for sure. Absolutely for sure. 
Well, so that's a good, I love the way you, you frame that with the metaphor. It's an is, not a like. So when we say things like God is a rock, God mm-hmm. is light, God is, you know, we know that we're not literally saying that God is a rock, but it has meaning. Mm-hmm. And connecting God to a rock connects us to aspects of the rock. When we picture a rock, that it creates this image in our minds of something that is sometimes beyond words, and that's where metaphor is really important. So when we get into light and darkness in the spiritual realm as a metaphor, it actually takes on multiple meanings, but I would argue that the church has more recently looked at it in maybe only one side of meaning. So sometimes metaphors are used in contradictory ways. For example, if we were to consider in the Bible who is portrayed as a lion, what do we see in Scripture? Who's portrayed as a lion in Scripture? What comes to mind is Satan. He is, right? But so is Jesus. Right. <laughs> He's also portrayed as a lion. So let's, let's look at these two verses. So in 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, of course, this is a little bit more of a simile than a metaphor. It's like a lion that he's praying around when you just use that definition of simile. But the lion is connected to Satan here. The image of the lion is connected to Satan. The implication is that Satan is a savage beast hunting for prey, and we should be aware and cognizant of that. But then we have a completely opposite use of lion as a metaphor with Jesus in Revelation 5.5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Some Christian traditions sing a song called the Lion of Judah, which celebrates Jesus as a lion. So it's important to recognize this with light and darkness as we enter this conversation. So light and darkness can be applied to our spiritual life in one context. But it's not the only way to apply it. And if we miss the other side of the conversation, we miss really important pieces of spiritual development or ways we can see our spiritual life. So what I thought we would do is start with the common way that light and darkness is used in church life today. Light and darkness is used in this case as this idea of living in an open and authentic life. And we can pick it up in Old Testament passages this the beginnings of this, like in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, or Psalm 43, send me your light and your faithful care, lead them or let them lead me. And so in this way, light and darkness are starting to pick up this idea that light is good and transparent and brings hope and insight. And we certainly see this in the New Testament, particularly in John's writings. We see John and John and 1 John talk about this. And Hannah, maybe you could read here a passage that we're familiar with that would really re-emphasize this um, way of seeing Mm. it, which is in John 3, verses 19 to 21. Yeah, this is a verse I'm very familiar with. (laughs) This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light 
and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So this passage communicates a really strong dualism. Light is good, dark is bad. So the light and dark metaphor here works to communicate authenticity and humility, right? We have another one in John 12, 46. Can you read that one for us? I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Yeah, here light is offered as hopeful, the place where Jesus resides, and darkness is for those who don't know Jesus, right? So it's really helpful in this context. So there's another great one that again gets used a lot in church life, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. You read that one? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. These passages are really, really important. They're really helpful. They paint clear and inspiring pictures of walking in the light, right? And they're really particularly helpful in our early days as as we're building foundations, as we're learning. What does it really mean to be a Christian? How do I walk in the light? You know, that it's it's good. It's really helpful, right? Yeah, this is a really interesting conversation. I think it's good we started with defining even metaphor and because I, I even having studied, I know last semester I started studying black liberation theology. And maybe this is an extreme example, but seeing the way the Bible can be distorted when we take metaphor one way and not in kind of this holistic way. But I remember reading texts where it was very clear how that very simplistic binary of light as good and dark as bad was used throughout history, even to reinforce things like racial superiority, for example, where white is good and black is bad. And that's kind of where you end up with things like white Jesus and other concepts like that, which, yeah, yeah. a very narrow way of looking at something and distorted. Yeah. Well, you know, my friends tease me. I use the word tension a lot when I'm in conversation with them about spiritual things. We have to hold things in tension. So yes, we can look at Jesus as a lion, but we can also see Satan as a lion. We have to hold this tension that these metaphors can play both ways. Similarly here with walking in the light, we have to hold that intention with what I want to talk about the rest of the time together here is walking in the dark. How do we learn to walk in the dark? What does that mean? Because darkness also plays a critical role in our spiritual life. So I don't mean in this case, and again, let's define what the metaphor is doing. I don't mean darkness as evil or darkness as in hiding things. That's not what we're talking about anymore. I mean, looking at darkness as an integral part of the rhythm of life, just like we have daytime, we have nighttime, and there's things that happen in the day and there's things that happen in the night. And without nighttime, we don't really have a good daytime. So what we'll do here is we'll kind of unpack this by talking first about this idea of rhythms. So when we get to, we started in Genesis 1 early on about God separating light and dark. But if we move down now to the verse we were in last week and talked about sacred times, there's another aspect to this verse in Genesis 1, 14 to 18. Hannah, if you read this, I would love to point out when you're done reading this text, 
how this verse also talks about rhythms with darkness and things that happen in God's creation of darkness that are also important to our spiritual life. So, And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Yeah, so for this conversation, the important elements in this passage are, one, God separates day from night, they're separate, two, lights give light on earth, we'll talk about that. And then, importantly, the greater light, the sun, would govern the day. The lesser light, the moon, would govern the night. So let's walk through some observations here from the text. So, again, some of these may seem really simple, but they'll make the point here as we unpack them. Day and night are created as different from one another. Both are important. These lights give us the ability to navigate both day and night. In other words, the day is illuminated by God. The night is illuminated by God. So the lights that separate the day from the night have their place and purpose. We can think about this biologically. Day is active in general. Night is passive. So in other words, during the day, we focus on what we do, but when we go to sleep, any doctor will tell you that there are things happening to us as our body regenerates in the rhythm of night that's critical to our well-being and our health. So without a proper night, the day's pretty rough. If anyone's ever had a sleepless night, they know what I'm talking about. Mm. You ever had a a sleepless night or a problem oh, yeah. getting a good night's sleep? Yeah, in college, I actually had insomnia. And I remember thinking, oh, this is great at first because I could do all my essays at night because I wasn't sleeping. And then I'd read what I'd read the next day and it was awful, like no punctuation, just terrible. So yeah, sleep is important. It's not bonus hours when you have insomnia. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, yeah, so... There's a uniqueness about what happens in the day, and there's a uniqueness about what happens at night. Mm. What Can you speak a bit more to kind of what's unique about day and night? So when I think of night, I think of things like rhythm, intimacy, relaxation, rest, recovery, restoration, connection, friendship, pondering, thoughtfulness, mystery, even mystical you know, the idea of the mystical, and, and we'll get into that more and more as we talk through this podcast, the role that mysticism plays or the mystical plays or mystery plays mm. in our spiritual life. So if we were just to consider how many times in the Bible that dreams play a central role in the story, it shows us that, yeah, there's something happening here that's different. So when we look at the text and it says things like, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, but then the text articulates that daylight and moonlight would be different, we can think about that even biologically in our ecosystem. Daylight accomplishes certain things. It's bright, plants thrive, 
by by being, you know, by the light shining on them, we know photosynthesis and all the things that happen in the daytime that we work during the day, that we sweat, that, you know, we can even get sunburned, right? There's this, there's this effect of daylight in our world. But moonlight plays an important role too. It's different. It's not bright. It's dim. It's more subtle. It creates ambiance. It's times of reflection. We, we love taking walks in the moonlight because it's romantic or cozy or there's a connectivity that can happen in that space. Mm. So when God made these two great lights, one to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night, we can recognize that they are governed by different sources. Both come from God. The sun is from God. The moon is from God. The sun may be brilliant and we can't look directly at it or we go blind, (laughs) but it brings life to the planet. The moon is mysterious. We actually love to look at it. It's inconsistent. It's fickle. Sometimes it's bright. Sometimes it's missing. Mm. So they both kind of serve their purpose. I think I understand the benefits kind of in creation with light and dark. How, how would you say this applies then to us, and to, to our spiritual lives? Yeah, so that's, that's really the importance of the rest of this conversation because darkness is often where God speaks to us. Darkness is where transformation happens. So I think it'd be good to unpack those kind of concepts. So if we were to think about the idea of visions or where God speaks to us, I know for me, it's usually the times when the busyness, you know, when we're busy and we're running and we're doing all the things during the day, we often don't hear the voice of God. Mm. It's actually in the quieter times. It's when the sun's not bright. It's early mornings. It's late nights. Even in the texts that we see in the book of Genesis, Exodus, we see the idea of nighttime being a time of vision, right? So there's a number of passages, Hannah, maybe we can just go back back and forth on some of these texts to read and comment on and talk about how God speaks to us at night or God casts visions at night. So maybe Genesis 15.5 would be a good starting place. He took them outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So this vision that God brings to Abraham happens at night when he can see the stars and he has his attention, right? That's really interesting time. Then he has this, he goes to sleep and he has this vision in later in the chapter, in chapter 15 where we actually see an image that God paints in verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. I love talking about this verse. I think when we get to this text in our story, we'll explain and unpack what was really happening here. But it was this vision that, that Abraham at the time received that really cast a whole vision for his life and was a defining moment for him, right, that happened. So darkness also becomes an image of where God appears. And we see this play out at Sinai when Moses brings the people to Sinai. We see this image of darkness even as Moses was approaching God in Exodus 20. 
in verse 21, it says, The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So this passage, I love the image that this gives us, this thick darkness where God was. Mm. So God, in this case, is in the darkness and he speaks out of the darkness. And Moses moves towards him, approaches the darkness to speak with God. So that image becomes really important in our spiritual life, which we'll get to in this next section about transformation. But before we do, there's one more passage I think that would be helpful to look at in Genesis 28. Verse 16 to 17, it says, When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob, who has a fascinating life, and we'll talk about him as well in a future episode, but Jacob comes to faith, or at least his faith grows in these important increments in these visions that he receives, certainly here at night, in this dream. So he wakes up from this dream when he recognizes God's presence in his life, and he names the place Bethel or the house of God. So he's like, I, I recognize this is the place where I came to see the presence of God, right? So we see night play a really important role as far as getting a vision or how God speaks to us sometimes in these dark spaces. But we also see darkness as a place where transformation happens. And my favorite story, I think we'll have to do a whole episode on Genesis 32 on Jacob wrestling with God. There's so much that's happening in this text. But again, here we have Jacob at night when everything has been taken out of his periphery, which to me, you know, symbolizes he's removed all the distractions from his life and he enters into this engaging wrestling match with this person. And he doesn't even recognize that it's God he's wrestling with until after the wrestling match happens. And then he sees God all over it, right? But it's, it's in these dark times. And you think of all the symbolism that this, you know, what this represents for us. So if God is present and governing both day and night, and we talk about the day so much, we often don't recognize that God is actually doing some of his best work in the dark times of our life. Right. So we, even in church life, we don't like to talk about lament. We like to talk about the mountaintop experiences. We want to be happy. We want to sing the good songs. We don't, we don't talk a lot about grieving. We don't talk a lot about suffering. We don't talk a lot about wilderness periods of time. Again, we'll get into this at length as we develop the story of Israel, but most of the time, Israel is in a time of wilderness. Most of the time, we're struggling. Most of the time, we're going through dark times in our life, right? We, we want to somehow imagine that our life is mostly good and happy and on the mountain and we're experiencing all these wonderful things. But the reality is God is doing God's best work for us in these wilderness, desert, dark night times in our life. So how much more do we need to be talking about how to walk in the dark? 
again, not saying walking in evil and burying our sin. That's not at all what I'm saying, but I'm saying using the metaphor to talk about the importance of walking in these spaces where we're suffering, where we're in wilderness, where we're struggling, instead of being afraid of the dark, afraid of the suffering, learning how to lean into these wilderness moments and recognizing that spiritual maturity is actually the result of us passing through these difficult times and we need to help each other in these moments. Hmm. I, I love that idea of darkness as a time of vision. It feels so ironic and kind of paradoxical, but, and I hate to admit it, but I really feel like I've seen the truth of it in my own life too. And I think about times I considered dark or the role darkness has kind of played in my own life. I think 2020 was probably one of those times for me. I think it was dark for the the whole world in a sense with with covid but for me i feel like it was dark in the sense of crushed hopes or just a real uncertainty about the future and my next steps which were kind of exacerbated by the pandemic and being unable to fly home and be with family but i also feel like that was a time where i grew the most from sheer desperation i feel like i'd exhausted all other resources and I had to turn to God and was forced to rely on God to be my light when I feel like I couldn't see in the, a foot in front of me or I couldn't see in the dark, which makes me think of a, a quote I've heard um, by Charles Spurgeon where he, he says, to trust God in the light is nothing, but trust him in the dark, that is faith. It makes me think also of the, that very definition of faith in Hebrews 11 as being sure of what we do not see. and. Yeah, I think faith is like best exemplified in darkness and in those dark times. Yeah, I would say so much so that we instinctively actually trust people more when we know they've experienced dark times. You know, part of our ministry life, we spent 17 years working with families and teenagers and the complexities of parenting teenagers. That was a big part of Best in My ministry experience. And I would say in talking to Christians as they're struggling through their parenting lives, I watched them respond more and trust people who had challenging times of their own. So if someone got up to teach or talk about family life and their family seemed to just be perfect and ideal and everything worked out for them, they're like, yeah, 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 that's great for you, but that's not my real life. And they actually felt more drawn to people that go, oh, wow, you've struggled the same way I have. You've been through dark times too. You have something to teach me because your darkness has matured you and I want to learn from that. So. I think it's, we, we know this kind of deep down. We just don't always name it and talk about it the way we should in the church. So we can find comfort and hope from people as they've gone through dark times. In my own research work, a huge part of what drove my research and my PhD was my own spiritual dark times. And what's been interesting over the last three, four years is I've had so many Christians seek me out, find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or get my number from someone and reach out and just say, I know you don't know me, but I've heard you talk about your dark times in your spiritual life. And 
I really can relate. Can we talk? And that's kind of become a ministry for me, ministering to people in these dark times in their life. So that's all important to think about. I, I think there's one other aspect that we should address, which is this idea of how light can actually become a pollution or spiritual light pollution in the sense of this conversation when we think about this metaphor this way. So scientists have studied the ill effects of too much light. You talked about that earlier when you talked about technology and us moving away from candlelight. One of the authors that I've learned a lot about this topic from is a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor. And she had this book called Learning to Walk in the Dark, which was really helpful for me to develop my own theology and spirituality around this topic. And she has this section in her book that I thought it would just be really valuable for us to read this paragraph. Hannah, could you read this for us? Yeah. Every time we turn on a light after dark, receptors in our eyes and skin send messages to our adrenal pituitary. He didn't prepare me for these scientific words, Dave. And pineal glands <laughs> to stop what they are doing and get ready for the new day. Fluorescent lights and computer screens both flicker on and off at about 60 to 120 cycles a second, which is enough to fool your brain into thinking that the sun is coming up. But even the light from a cell phone charger or a glow-in-the-dark clock can cue your body that morning is underway. When that happens, your adrenal gland starts pumping more adrenaline into your bl bloodstream to handle the stress of an ordinary day. This tells your pituitary gland to back off on the human growth hormone your body uses to repair your muscles and bones at night. It also signals your pineal gland, correct me any doctors that are listening, to stop making melatonin, the hormone that regulates your sleep, which you can only do in the dark. No wonder sleep aids have their own section in the supermarket. Turning on your bedside lamp may help you get safely to the bathroom and back, but it will also upset your chemistry. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I love her insights into how oh, too much light can affect our inability to process the need for restoration of our body in sleep and what should be happening. This, this happens spiritually too. There's this kind of sense of spiritual light pollution that I think can, especially in certain traditions of the Christian church, can really be a problem. And I think spiritual light pollution looks like the idea of having to be happy or on all the time, being hyped. Are you excited? Are we, mm. are we doing good? Is everything, you know, like yep, somehow we have to be on positivity i've heard it said yeah that's a great way of framing it toxic positivity so there's no understanding of rhythm or the need to mourn or the need to grieve or to time to restore to be ourselves to recover to be authentic so we can begin to define a person spiritually by outward zeal instead of a balanced and holistic maturity and I think that's an important thing to recognize in the kind of spiritual light pollution conversation. So I want to address an important uh, spiritual writer from the past, quite a bit in the past, from the 16th century that 
that talks about a concept that kind of creeps up today or comes into conversation today, uh, and that's John of the Cross. And I, I think we'll probably revisit him at different times through our episodes and podcasts. I've done a lot of study on John of the Cross. So John of the Cross was a monk, a Carmelite monk from the 16th century, trying to bring about reform in the Catholic Church as Calvin and Luther were bringing about reform outside the Catholic Church. So there was reform happening within and without. But he was imprisoned by his brethren for his attempts at reform. And he ended up writing a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. This poem became then kind of a launching point for a whole commentary he wrote on the work of God in these dark times. So as he's sitting in his dark and damp prison cell, again imprisoned by his brothers, he writes this poem, which has been called one of the most beautiful poems ever written, certainly in the Spanish language of which it was originally written. But I wanted to read this and talk about the dark night of the soul, as he defines it, and how we can see what God is doing versus what sometimes we're doing in the role that each play. And so we'll, t- we'll just talk about this a little bit today to give people a, a taste. So he says, one dark night, fired with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace, I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled, in darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. So what John is addressing is that God does some of God's best work in darkness. He actually talks about these two different nights, the night of the senses and the night of the spirit. And we can understand this in, in symbolic sense. When we think about the night of the senses, we would say for when someone becomes a Christian and they have this zeal, this excitement about their Christian life, we call first fervor, right? They're just super excited. They're in their honeymoon phase with God. And they just want everyone to know it. And it's a wonderful thing. And I'm not trying to take away from that important stage of our spiritual development. It's really important. But as we all know, we wake up to a different reality over time. That that first fervor gets refined. That there's a humbling process. That our motivations get, you know, tested, right? So that's what he's addressing, that there's this darkness that kind of can come and shape that. But in, later in life, we would go through the second dark night, which he calls the night of the spirit. And this is really as God continues to shape our very character through suffering, through darkness, through wilderness. So God works diligently to transform us. So again, we won't get into all the details about this, but we do feel it instinctively. We know in these dark times that we reach for God because we need to reach for God. It's actually in our pain that we find the gift of God's presence. So I think as we talk about light and darkness, it's important, right, to get into this. So the older I get, 
the more I feel the need to discern what God's spirit is saying to me, I find that the most intimate moments to listen to God are in dark times in those spaces. I think it's important for me to take advantage of the rhythms of life, whether they're seasons of darkness or just even the darkness in the rhythm of every night. So as we think about this, I think the challenge for us today is to embrace this kind of darkness in our lives and to come to understand the role that it plays, to lean in to wilderness, to lean in to struggle, to lean into these uh, moments. And so when we're there, and I think we're able to embrace this and recognize that it's part of our spiritual life, then we can actually find guidance in these times. We can find the books to read, the people to talk to. We can explore the role of the moon and the other presences that assist our nighttime orientation. So I think if we stop seeing darkness as our enemy or something to avoid, but rather understand and appreciate and even welcome it into our life, then we're going to see the work that God is trying to do as he's transforming us. I think those are great words for us to sit with. And I appreciate just in this dialogue, the way you've disrupted and expanded kind of that traditional understanding we spoke about of light and darkness. And I actually think this episode will be reassuring perhaps to a lot of people, definitely for me, for those that might be navigating a season of night, as you've described it. I love that you said God is doing some of his best work in the dark. So we'll see you all next week. Where we'll be talking about what it means to be fully human and how the vision that God has painted in Genesis for humanity and what that can look like in all its fullness. So we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm way down here, I get a better view of this boundless 